Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hi. You know that movie you always wanted to see, but you didn't for whatever reason? Well, I call those black hole films. Everyone has them, and this podcast aims to do something about that. I'm Jeremy Lalonde, and every episode I'll be joined by one or more guests to watch a film that at least someone in that group hasn't seen. We'll talk about our expectations of it before it, and then our thoughts after it. This is episode 57, and I'm joined by Saul Pincus, who made an indie film a couple years back called Nocturne, as well as David Tampa, who is appearing in this upcoming season of Handmaid's Tale, as well as he's been on The Expanse and Odd Squad, and a bunch of my stuff as well. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. All right, so we're sitting down to watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I'm Jeremy. I have seen this film quite a few times. Uh, I'm Dave, and I've never seen it. I'm Saul. I've seen the movie, and I actually saw it when it came out when I was seven years old on a big screen. Wow. And Saul brought nerdy stuff to show later. Oh, fun. Nerdy stuff leading into a nerdy conversation, probably. Great. <laughs> I, I'm ready to nerd out. And so how is that you never came around to this? I, I have no idea. I mean, it's it's a bit... It's a, I was too young to see it, I think, when it came out of the theater. Yeah, same. Well, it was and 77, right? it just... You, was it? I don't know. Yeah. I, I know so little about this It was film. the same year as Star Wars. That's crazy. But this was the other take, not the non-fantasy take on sort of inter... Uh, I, maybe I shouldn't say it. Like, yeah. I really don't... I, I'm pretty sure there are aliens or UFOs. Uh, oh, you know very. I know. I know so little. I know like boo, 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 <laughs> or whatever it is. Isn't there like that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I don't know. That's the not exact, exact two. That's not it, but something like that. And then the notes, only other yeah. thing I know about it is that Richard Dreyfus must cry in it at some point because in the uh, special edition he does. Yes. Oh uh, well. Which, okay. one, which version are we watching today? Oh God! Because there I, are three the, versions of the. Film. It was the one that was on because I, I thought I owned this and I realized I hadn't. So it was whatever <laughs> one was rentable on iTunes. <laughs> It's the one that's... There's two versions, and I rented the one that's three minutes longer. <laughs> well, but is this the one that was just released? Do you know? What does it say? Stand by. Because we can talk about the specifics later, but we don't have to. Yeah, but let's absolutely talk about the specifics later, because I, <laughs> I don't want any... I don't want to yeah, know anything. Yeah, it doesn't give me any... Uh, I'll bet, it's the, I'll bet, it's, the, I'll bet it's, the, it's the one he wants us to see, which, which is really the, the best his best take at the movie it says the cut yeah the only close which is the, the latest only, one it says 2007 yes that would be that, that would great be. that's the one we're watching that's cool the awesome the reason I know that is because of the story of Steve McQueen being offered the role and turning it down oh that would have been a different because movie. yeah well because he said uh, he read that the guy cries at one point yeah and, and he, he, said, and he said he said that's really important you need to have that and I can't do it so you gotta hire someone else huh yeah, the story the story I've heard is more is much more specifically Dreyfus and this is more believable to me that they were they were living in the same house on Martha's Vineyard shooting Jaws together ah. and and then along the way and Spielberg would, would basically call at that time you, the only way to get movies to watch was to order 16 millimeter prints from from studio archives because they used to make them for military personnel and send them out and that's how they watched movies all the time so so Spielberg would have new movies new classic movies would arrive every night or, or once a week, a whole bunch of them. They sit there and they watch them after a day's shooting on the water, all the travel, all the turn, and they'd be still be bleary eyed and awake watching these movies. And they talked all the time. 
And so Spielberg told him about the stories. Oh, I wouldn't do that. That would be the movie. And then they basically sort of agreed then and there that he would be in it. I'm sure there was the runaround, you know, with studios saying, no, we want somebody bankable, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. But yeah, I don't know about that. But Drivers might have been attached very early in a process. Yeah, or it might have been sort of like, yeah, great, Richard. And then, you know, it might have gone off on a journey and then come back. Yeah, I'm sure there's a scenario where both those stories exist. It's possible that they both exist, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I took um, they recently. I was telling Saul before you got here that they recently re-released this in the theaters for I think just a one night only or, mm-hmm. or a weekend only for the 40th anniversary. And I took Ephraim, who hadn't seen it and is a huge Spielberg fan. And I made the mistake, and there was, it was only a later screening, and he doesn't typically do those. He gets you know how the kids they get tired, they get mm-hmm. there's just the body their body chemistry literally changes. Okay. And so I let him get his typical snack, which is like a small bag of Skittles. And about three quarters way through the movie, he just, I can just notice a shift in him. I was like, buddy, you okay? Is everything good? And projectile vomits (laughs) all over himself. And in the thing, he's looking around, he's like, what do I do? What's going on? So we had this stealth sneak. And I went out and told the ushers, I was like, hey, my kid got sick. And they're like, oh, so not helpful. So I kind of went, I'm going to do the least amount of effort I can do to clean this up and get him out of here. Because you don't seem to care or want to help me. I, I also don't know that it's your job to clean up the mess, even though your kid did it. Well, I did my best. You know, it's not. I used to be an usher, like when I was 20 in, in, in university and trying to earn a few bucks on the side in the, the large theater in Montreal, a really great, great place. And we had somebody puke right over the seat right in front of them and during the climax of The Godfather Part 3. Oh! Uh, which was gorgeous. And quite a climax for them to do that on a Monday night, just as about you know 11 o'clock because I want to go home, right? So uh, we had this powder, which was extremely effective. But you know, anytime you go near vomit, you're like, you just there's nothing to cover you. You just want to be Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs with the stuff in your nose. Well, that's you know? what I kind of me. I was more worried about the other people in the theater. It wasn't sure, a packed sure, sure, theater, sure. but it's you're, enough you're, that I'm like, you're gonna smell it. You're a good guy. Yeah, you're a nice yeah. guy. You but they'll come in with the powder. It's amazing what you do. The powder. You leave powder. You walk away. I don't know if they. I don't honestly. The stuff's so powerful. It feels like it's the same as that they had in, in primary school. Yeah, that little Clorox or whatever. And it, it just was. Becomes, I don't it just that, it just sort of becomes this kind of cakey kind of thing, which you then just clean off easily. Kind of just. Yeah, you gotta wonder what it's made of, you know, because yeah. anyway. right, yeah. And at that point, as an usher, you you don't want some parent like spreading it around with some kind of no tissue or something. No, which is exactly what <laughs> exactly I exactly. I mostly just wanted to clean it off of him so I could get him out of the theater. Well, that's fair. Well, not trying to get anything on me because we also didn't have. I didn't bring. It's not like he's four anymore. I didn't bring other clothes. A diaper bag with yeah. Yeah. So he ended up. We ended up shuttling him to the bathroom where I cleaned him off, and then I I had a hoodie on. Luckily. So he ended up, I just put my hoodie on him, because he was naked otherwise, and walking <laughs> through the movie theater. <laughs> oh, brutal. And what scene did this happen during? Uh, I won't say, because Dave <laughs> hasn't seen it yet, yeah, but later. I'll explain later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I ended up the next morning renting it, uh, and then so he could watch the ending. Because oh. he was also like, I didn't get to see it, how it finished. So like, right. You wanted to go back in the theater after? So, <laughs> yeah. so that's the last time I watched the movie. Not that it has anything to do with the movie, but it's yeah. my... It, 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 it'll be interesting to see, yeah, what, what kind of impact it does or doesn't have on you. Sure, sure. Given, what's ha- given, you know, everything. given what, everything that's happened since, uh, given yeah. the freshness that this, the, this movie was so fresh in terms of concept, ideas, execution, yeah. so of its time. It'll be very interesting to see. Well, uh-huh. 
Let's well, dive I'm, in. I'm curious. It's supposed to be good. <laughs> so. All right, let's do it. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right, we just finished. Yep. Let's start with you. Okay. It was great. Yeah, like, I really... I, I, it's insane... I see some of the special effects aren't amazing. And then at the very end, when the aliens come out, I'm a little disappointed because it's like, I don't want to see them really. But none of that mattered. It was still, I was still awestruck by it all. And it's very, it's just so well made. It's a different way of making film than mm. they do now, really. Um, and there's something about it that is so kind of pure and innocent and awe-inspiring and and I'm I I don't I don't know exactly how to put my finger on it like in terms of what it is about what they're doing that's working so well because it's not the alien design or the costume design or the the flashing lights or whatever it's it's maybe the other actor's reaction is so wonderful or Whoever that kid is was amazing. Yeah. Like the acting, I love the acting from this kind of era. Uh, a lot of the time, so much more than modern day acting. And I love the filmmaking of this kind of era so much more than a lot of the filmmaking. And what now. is it about the acting that you prefer? For me, uh, somehow it's changed so that every single thing matters so much. In, in movies that are made nowadays, not just the acting, but the sh- like the shots, how each shot selection, each mm. everything and like the line and like everything's got to be said really intimately and like it's the most important thing ever said, you know, it, it, and that's an exaggeration. But like there's something like they're talking on top of each other. Mm-hmm. a lot in this movie it's like the dialogue isn't so important it's more the feel of what's going on or something well that's a nice well, that's Spielberg in with him absolutely right. yeah because all his films like that right. yeah because yeah. he creates a lot of the rhythm in these, in these gorgeous but, but even the, the one that I always think of is Karate Kid like I watched that not too long ago again and it's it's like this this stuff about it that's cheesy but and dated but overall it just works so well and the way that it's shot is so much more real or something natural. There's a sim- there's a simplicity to it. I guess so. It's just it's not so it's not so self-important or something. It's not every moment isn't like this perfectly crafted magical moment. It's just sort of unravels in front of you and that and then it's like each moment I could even be a little bit bored, except that overall I have this wonderful experience watching this movie, you know, in mm. particular, or or Karate Kid or whatever yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. you know. And and there are even moments in this where it's like, well, that's that's kind of weird, or that's kind of dated, or that's kind of like little things. But overall, the the feeling I have is like of, of like wonder, absolute wonder, in, in the way that, in a similar way, I guess, to watching, you know, The Abyss, I, uh, I had a similar feeling. Like that one the abyss, the abyss was really very effective. much riffed on this. On this uh, yeah, movie, yeah. I mean, it, it's not surprising at all. The thing is, they used to in the eighties, uh, they they would call Spielberg the poet of suburbia. But before he was the poet of suburbia, he was very much the poet, I think, of the southern U.S., the Southwest mm. U.S. 
in terms of his portrayal of people with accents of that period. You get the sense that this is really happening in the heartland, even though it's Wyoming, right in the picture. But his first few movies, Sugarland Express, even before that duel, which was a TV movie that was released as a feature later, uh, uh, Jaws, all these these films very much get the sense of rural characters portrayed in a very naturalistic way. And he takes his time yeah. With them, he doesn't sit there and kind of, he never sort of, he never makes fun of them, which would be really something that you'd see all the time today. You'd see a lot a lot of the times <laughs> in comedies even of this era, but he, he always takes them as human beings. And I yeah. think that, 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 that aspect that you're referring to, which is these moments that could almost be boring, well, not quite that, but it's almost kind of mundane. Right. Right? But, but and that's the thing, not every shot in this movie is a product shot. But today, every shot in every movie is certainly a, a bigger film or event film of some kind needs to be a product shot. Right. Right. So like in this film, the product shots stand out because they are very much, you know, they're amazing. They're gorgeous. And the, and the other thing. And some are literally product shots. Some are literally <laughs> product. There's so much, so much of that. The Wiggly Wiggly. Wiggly Wiggly. Wiggly There's a Baskin Robbins. But, that, but yeah. this is a film of firsts. And this is where I don't want to, I don't want to overwhelm the conversation with this, but really this is a film of firsts. Like there's so many firsts in this film. <laughs> the type of event film this was, the type of film that this is in terms of being a positive thinking film coming out of the era of, right. of Richard Nixon, which is transition you see throughout this film sort of the mundane to the uh, to the religioso the glorious nature of things and how wonderful things can possibly be coming out in the same year as star wars this was december star wars was may earlier in the year mm. a lot of people saw star wars in july because that was the general release but but one two punch of that kind of positivity and coming out of that era of that period of time was a right. huge 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 thing. Anyway, there's a lot. There's a lot one could say about it. But this is a film of firsts in terms of product placement. It's a film of firsts in terms of not in terms of uh, I guess a mass a mass audience appeal picture about UFOs about aliens. Um, 2001 had come out before this, and it was the important movie about it. That was 1968, and and Kubrick incidentally had done a lot of experiments to try to portray aliens. And finally decided that it would be a letdown, and no matter what he did, right, right. on your point there. So that's very so that, that clearly Spielberg felt the need to to show them, but to make that whole or the Jesus image of him being carried off like this, right. yeah, essentially yeah, yeah. at the end of the picture, you know. Um, yeah, anyway, go on. But. There's, there's something so earnest about this film, and and a lot of Spielberg's films, but it, that that really. It is. It's very, very simple, very pure, very earnest, very hopeful, very positive, mm-hmm. and and that's that's striking somehow for me anyway. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, a, it's wonderful, it's, isn't it? It's yeah, it is. and just feel a very pure emotion, and not, not to feel sort of toyed with, you know, completely or toyed with for the wrong reasons. You talk about the serious nature of the delivery and, and the performance right. in this film. One of the things I have always felt and and sort of only articulated to myself I recall in my early teens about it was there are some films and some filmmakers who always deliver you can count on them to deliver one way or the other now Spielberg has had a few films recently that have not delivered for me but that's that's irrelevant for a lot of his career the first two thirds of it he has really delivered in a lot of ways mm. so you buy into that emotion you buy into that seriousness you buy into the gravitas that you're being given because you know the guy who, who's delivering it is going to be able to now at this time you didn't know that 
Right. They had just made Jaws. That was the only audience picture. It was about a shark. It was an adventure picture. It was, it was not this movie at all. Mm-hmm. No, but it was also so stunning. It, I mean, stunning. And it blew people away. So, so amazing. Yeah. yeah. And what he does really, really well is he, he finds little moments where he grounds the world and the characters. And especially what he, he does really well at the beginning of this film with um, Dreyfus's character is just finding human little moments where he interacts with his kids and his family. They're yeah. just so mundane and so natural, like the argument over Pinocchio versus is it Goofy Golf. Yeah, Goofy Golf, and all the all the things that the kids are doing at the at the same time that are so real and so and like you know the kids sitting there smashing his ass. Well, and smash. Yeah, that's too. But but that's that's a setup. This is I'm talking about the chaos of the kid like in the playpen, yeah. destroying the doll while they're having the conversation. Yeah. You know, and then the girl coming in, and, and it's it's just all like. It's all very like, like how are how is he directing this to happen? What if what if this is scripted? I think he's what allowing. Is, I think he's he's allowing kids to be kids and just having the actors react. That's what it seems like. I think he's connecting with them. I think that's right. the, the, big, the big difference. If you were talking, a lot of directors will stay. You know, okay. So why don't you go and do this, or why don't you go and do that, or talk to them? Essentially, it's the difference between the the metaphorical difference between standing up, talking to a kid, and actually getting on the floor. And right. playing with them and getting into their world. And I do think that there are a lot of stills and a lot of, I mean, I'm only going off of what I yeah. see as far as, you know, the way this film was made. But also, you can see them in all the behind-the-scenes stuff on E.T. and other films. And even Empire of the Sun with Christian Bale as a young kid that, yeah. in that film. But the way that he gets inside, you know, Christian Bale's world right. to be able to get that performance out of him, it's hardly uh, mechanical. With well, he, he is such a kid. Right, yeah. and and you At see that, point. yeah. Well, but, well, I mean, yeah. But even just like now, Spielberg's still a big kid. You know, he gets excited about stuff. Like he goes off, and then he has his little serious periods. Where no, I shouldn't say little serious periods. I think he's transitioning, but that's just me. I no, but I still yeah. think in his heart, he's just he has that eternal youth in the way that a lot of filmmakers don't. You know, he mm-hmm. gets excited about things still. I think. You know, you look at him making something like Ready Player One that's about to come out. Mm-hmm. Or will have come out by the time this airs, potentially. You know, and, he, and he's still in awe and in wonderment of certain things. Um, uh, where was I going to go with this? But, and, and, you know, yeah, because of the kid stuff. If you, if you pour into some of the bonus features on his films of this era, like there's a great one in the E.T. disc when he's interviewing um, the kid who plays Elliot. And, just, and there's the audition tape. And you oh, just hear yeah. the two of them talking. Yeah, that's great. And it's just amazing. And you're like, that's exactly why you're so great at what you do, especially with kids. Mm-hmm. Right, and how you connect with them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's, it's really, really great. Because what I like about that scene is that it... Is it one wide shot? I mean, there's not a ton of... Cutting. Yeah, it's just panning back and forth. No, it cuts at one point later on. But that's a lot of this movie is like, you know, the way he lends Let's, it with Zygmunt is just these gorgeous wide... It's a lot of wide lenses... And just letting the the scene play out and, and really getting a sense of environment. Because everything is so assembled these days. I, I mean, that's a big generalization, but but like so perfectly assembled. And this shot, this but, uh, shot, yeah, this moment, it, that moment, this. And then when they want to overlap, then they'll they'll manipulate the overlapping. Yeah. As so so, so Zygmunt won the Academy Award for this movie for for cinematography. Oh, right. But by this point, this was his second movie with Spielberg. He had done his first, and his and this being his third, and they didn't get along. 
right. and you can see that clash in this film as far as I as far as, far as so? I can see just in terms of just in terms of the way that scenes are covered some of it the interesting thing about Zygmunt of course is he shot some he shot uh, some Altman pictures right yeah he shot a lot of a lot of kind of uh, grungy looking pictures he shot Deliverance hmm. a, a lot of films from that period I see a guy who is more interested in improvising and using zooms than Spielberg really ever was, except in his first film, which was absolutely all. Well, we haven't you haven't seen Sugarland Express, but it's Snap Zoom City, it, mm-hmm. and it's the only film that Spielberg could use zooms as a tool. And here he's using zooms to cover moments and things, but this very much is a is a is a Zygmunt style thing. I I see that I see the style. At work and it being cut around from time to time is mm. what I see in, the, oh, in here. Now it's interesting that I, I could go off and tell you a whole bunch of things, but it's a, but I'll tell you the one. So uh, one of the assistant editors on the film, Jeffrey Rollins, I met him about twenty years ago now, and we spent several days in the cutting room together. And at the time, I was very much trying to get a job editing features which I ended up doing so I was trying to impress him mm-hmm. with whatever knowledge I had in the pre-internet days so he was kind of blown away in that kind of double take kind of way a couple of times and then and he told me a story he said there's a story you've never heard I'll tell you something about closing cameras after bugging him for days <laughs> the scene at the table the dining room table with the mashed potatoes yeah so Spielberg was was very um angry with Verna Fields, who had cut his first two films, particularly Jaws, because she had hired a publicist to publicize her contribution to the film. As a result, Spielberg didn't get a directing nomination for that film, I don't oh. believe, for an Oscar. And he blamed it on her. He was pretty angry about it. So he didn't want to hire her to do, to do this film. And he wanted to be sure that no frame of film was cut before he got into the cutting room hmm. with this film. Months go by. They started, essentially, I think they started on the big set in Indiana, and uh, uh, not in Indiana, I'm not sure where they shot wow. the big set, but basically the big interior stuff. And they shot and shot and shot and shot. Months go by, and, and Michael Kahn, the editor, is sitting there, and finally he says, that's it, I'm going to go for it. And goes ahead and cuts the scene. Spielberg comes in and watches it, and he's taken aback because he's, you know he doesn't really want anyone to touch the film. He sits down and he watches it. Doesn't say a word. Goes back to the beginning, watches it again. A longer pause, described to me as five minutes. No <laughs> words. Runs it one more time. Stops and turns to Michael Kahn and says, I would not have cut it any differently. Wow. And, of course, Kahn has cut almost every movie he's made ever since. since. Yeah, right. But I think I think that, that you know, uh, what's interesting, too, is that I also hear I have I have friends working on Spielberg films now, and and uh, for friends of friends, shall we say, and I hear things about how Spielberg is and how he's basically cutting his own movies. Hmm. It's you know I mean yes, the editor brings something to it, but he's very much like that, and I think that's what Zyg- coming back to Zygmunt's point here. Zygmunt is quoted as saying that by this point Spielberg felt as if he knew so much that he wasn't as open minded. As he was on working on on uh, on Sugarland Express with him, so he he felt their collaboration wasn't as 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 communal, it's shall fruitful. we say? Interesting. Not necessarily as fruitful. It was yeah. definitely fruitful for him. Yeah, but I think and I think what's interesting, you know, is, is we're both filmmakers who are editors as well. Mm-hmm. And I watch this, and I know, and what I what I love about, I mean, Spielberg in general is his 
use of shots. Mm-hmm. And I know I've heard that he shoots and shoots and shoots. But I, Lots of stuff. But I also feel like he knows, like, he doesn't waste anything. He knows the reason for using a certain shot. He knows mm-hmm. why, like, as you mentioned, you know, things are very pure and simple. It's because he doesn't overuse close-ups. He doesn't just get close-ups mm-hmm. just for the sake of getting them. He's always like, shooting wide, really. Yeah, and he understands when you need a close-up and why, mm-hmm. and doesn't waste time getting them. Although mm-hmm. I'm sure he shoots and shoots for days, and, and schedule's not exactly he is known for sh- He is known for shooting. And shooting, and shooting, and shooting, and that's how he gets a lot. You're of talking about takes as opposed to coverage. No, I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about approaches to scenes. Hmm. One of the things that Spielberg is known is known He's for reshooting, reshooting a lot, and that's why he, he likes 65 day schedules. Not because he can't do the film in 30 days. Right. He can't make a great film in 30 days, right. or or shorter, or that sort of thing. It's very hard to do. Uh, he will turn around after spending a day or two over covering something and go. Wait a minute! Now I got it. Yeah, and just reshoot the whole Interesting. thing. Interesting. Yeah, I read even stories even recently about the, about the post mm-hmm. about that about you know AI. There's a scene in AI where you know he goes to get was it AI? I'm thinking of where he not AI, uh, Minority Report with uh, Samantha Morton. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's basically the image from the film where he he goes he he he, he hugs her because he see his face this way and her face that way and the way that scene was specifically that scene. Hmm. There are a number of others, but the post you were saying, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd love that as an actor. Yeah, but even, yeah, even in to the post. be able to be like, we gotta re- now that we've done these scenes, we gotta go back and reshoot that other scene because I there's so much more information that I have now. Like it would be, be amazing to have that kind of iterative process. And as you a, hear as a you hear a lot of people say early in his career he was not as open to that, but now he but now he reshoots. He had better relationships with kids than he did with adults because he was very much about where he wanted them to go and mm-hmm. they were very much Playmobil sets to him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was curious about you the first time because I, I find, what, my one complaint about this movie is I found, like, I found the first time I watched this when I was a teenager, I was, like, just in awe and glued to the whole time. But I do find this is one of Spielberg's films that I find as I rewatch it, especially when I watch it later at night, I just find that third act just... Pulls me to sleep. I, the, I, the one I, where they're with the. Just with by the, the time they the get to the, the, the devil, the devil's tower. Is that what it's called? Devil's tower. Devil's yeah. tower. By the time they get there, hmm. I just find it just so lethargic. Um, but but to a point, like it's gorgeous and it's important and it need, it's exactly what it needs to be. But I find it's just so hard for me anyway to rewatch that sequence. That's interesting because I feel. A bit of the opposite. I was waiting to get to that sequence right. because for me that sequence is such a beautiful dance of music and images mm-hmm. and action that it is the real poetry of that movie. I mean, there are so many other wonderful things to love before that. It's not that it, it's not that, but 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 there comes a point in the film, and this is why it's imperfect, and this yeah. is why we're watching a cut that is the third iteration of the film. He's never quite got the balance right, mm. even at the time when I was eight, when I was seven, and I saw this, I felt you know I was a bit bored. So the things I walk away from remembering are some of those highlight moments along the way, but certainly the end of the film. Yeah, but I know my son, like, when he watched it, he was eight. And he was, outside of the fact that he got sick and... When did when right. he puke? It was uh, right when they start taking off to Devil's Tower and with the birds in the birdcage. Right. Uh, okay. on that section. You know, do you know who takes the birds out of the, out of the car? You know who that guy is in the mask? He, he looked familiar. George Lucas. Oh no way! Way. Oh yeah. Funny. 
But no, but he was glued, and even in the end, we we rewatched. We basically rewatched the last hour because he wanted to get back into it from when he wasn't feeling great, and he was glued to it. But he's also got an attention span a lot of kids his age don't have because right. he's, he's used to watching longer movies. Mm. For, for me, it's, it was it, yeah. As a first watch, it it's before they discovered the Devil's Tower thing that it was a bit slow for me. Mm. Not the very beginning because the very beginning I'm just like, what's going on? And I'm like eager, like just taking it all in. Yeah. Cause they but don't that, give you any answers. No, they, they don't. They and, drop and, you in the middle of their here. And I, and I love that. I'm totally cool with that. I trust the filmmaker that I don't, I don't need to know something until you're going to give it to me. And that's when I need to know it. And that's it. That sometimes that doesn't work so well, but with good yeah. filmmakers, it works beautifully. Well, it works well here because he throws you in, he basically makes the Bob Balaban character your point of view, where it's like, you have the information he has. He's showing up, he doesn't know why these planes are here, he doesn't know why, so he, he's the, you know, the introduction the character. Rep, basically. Yeah. Until Dreyfus takes over, basically, right. as that yeah. character. But then there's that, a section in the middle there, before he sees it, compares the Devil's Tower to his sculpture, where it's like, okay, yeah. what's going on? I, I, need, so, I need something. Um, just no, the, you know, the, Miran- the Miranda, yeah, when he's going crazy he's going, he and, and crazy the UFOs this. aren't coming back and, and what's after the boy disappears and between when the boy disappears and when he sees the devil's tower to, to match it to a sculptor. Yeah. There's a section there where I, I, I'm just a bit like, okay, I want something to happen. And, and, and it's just kind of like this stu- has been a stirring since for a the while. film came out. And it's interesting to compare the versions because in the, in the different versions of this film, the original version, it was longer like this. And then in the, sh- and then in the re-release a few years later, which was really just done for money and they tacked on the ending, they actually shot a bit more, a few bits of which appear in this, but really the ending, you actually see Dreyfus go in the ship uh-huh. and it's another few minutes of visual effects and it's purposeless. It just, it ruins the magic of the ending. Right. But but the balancing of the overall film at that point trimmed some of the domestic stuff. Interesting. So you didn't get enough of the flow. Here I think he's here, I think this is very much Spielberg in you know, post Schindler's list, making the editorial decisions on this film. You mm-hmm. can feel that in terms of the relationships because it's much more balanced that way. Yeah, some of the domestic stuff goes on a bit. Like, in yeah. particular the scene that kinda of grates at me a little bit is the one where he's in the shower and then comes out and they have that fight. Yep. And then the next morning, yeah. he does the stuff where he's throwing all the plants in the window. I love that section. I love the kids wanting to help. It's it's so yeah, that what that's so good. It's so awesome that this daddy's just throwing help. trees during like, and then asking him, like this, like this, you know. That's exactly what he would do. It's totally perfect. I'm pretty sure the shower sequence was missing from the from the first version of the film. I think it's a reinstate. It was missing from one of the versions for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it, so it feels like an, questions about that. Too. It feels like the same. It's sort of that shower beat is the plant beat and the crying over the mashed potatoes beat merged into one or something like, yeah. so kind of maybe we don't need it as a train or, or maybe it's okay to sit there and, and stew a bit as you're watching it because that's what he's going through, you know, like, so, so I don't know, but uh, I wouldn't, I, I, I love, I'm so glad that we did this and I saw this movie I wouldn't rush back to see it because I feel like you get it all. I, I got it and it's special and I wouldn't want to watch yeah. it again. I have the thing with ET and also I have the boredom issue with ET now too. The, the first in the first half of the film a little mm. bit as well, a little bit, not always, but oh, because I, it's not as bad as this, but, but I, 
and believe me, I've seen ET a hundred times. I saw it twelve. I saw it once a month in '82 when it came out. Wow! You oh, could wow. not keep me away from this movie. It was two fifty, oh, wow. right? It was nothing to go see it. Yeah. So, I and I remember seeing exactly the same print and watching it get dirtier and scratchier and all this. Well, and you were, you were telling months. me before that it's like you were the same age as Elliot when it came out. Exactly the same age as the main character. Right, that that's key. And also, I was also as I was also that kind of kid. I was not at all an in child. I was totally off in my own dreamland. Right. And I could have dreamed that dream, the the the, the reality yeah. that he dreams in that film. So I felt very much a kinship with that with that character. <laughs> but the point being that the the setup that we talk about and the build to the moment where not so much the money shots, but the moments matter, where things have gravitas because we've bothered setting them up properly, is an aspect of filmmaking today that is right. I mean, it's certainly in in mass mass audience pictures, completely lost. Yeah. And, and I I love that, it, but see I don't I don't mind doing work. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't mind the work of it if there's a reward. It always pays off. To, 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 sure, of course, because it's about emotion ultimately, and it's about your know, investment, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's about and, and so I, I again not to go too far, Jeremy. You give me the nod when you want me to, to stop uh, being nerdy. Well, yeah, <laughs> never. But basically, but basically the the idea. Uh, this is that you know the, the the kind of number first that this film sort of achieved is it, it it was it clearly was trying very hard to make you take seriously a subject matter that clearly in the film it even acknowledges a lot of people just don't take serious sure yeah there's that one moment with the the guy that mentions Bigfoot. Right, and and you just yeah. pan and over sort of to, the guy, to Dick Drive as like this is not helping anything. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's wonderful. Right, but then he does. Then he then that's Robert's Blossom, the actor who's later in an episode of uh, the first episode of um, Amazing Stories called Ghost Train. He's the guy. That, hmm. He's a creepy old old guy and telling the uh, spinning spinning the magic at the beginning of that. But he but you see him sort of do that nod at the end, and, and I've always taken that nod at the end, that kind of like wink. At the end of that that moment, as if okay, maybe he is sort of into himself. Maybe he's just sort of saying, "We're not going to get anything, anything out of these guys anyway." Right. You know, huh. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. tell the story. Like you can almost interpret it two ways, and that's one thing I like about this film. And, and then oh, yeah. it's still, it's 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 fantasy, but the characters are shaped enough, the actors are committed enough to not let them become caricature like. Yeah. At least not to me. No, they don't no, feel no, that no. way at all. And it, it's, it's almost like a he set out the challenge of like, how do I make people believe? Right, prove it. Every scene is every scene is a thesis right. unto itself within a larger thesis. You know what can we do? And that's what that's why Spielberg has been so great at at that in that period in engrossing us. You trust him with fantasy because he could always make you relate to it in a way that. Made you engage with it. I do want to say one thing. I've got what I brought with me today, mm-hmm. and this is just these are just examples of something. I don't bring them for the on the face what they are. So this is a soundtrack album. This is an LP uh-huh. because we are now in an era where people look at LPs and they say, "Wow, that's really cool. They have such great sound quality. They sound better." They don't, but <laughs> but we think they do. Included with the original LP for the soundtrack of Close Encounters is a disco version. 
A disco Hilarious. version? A disco version of the Close Encounters theme. Why? It was, it was insisted upon. This is 1977, after all. <laughs> um, and I the don't think, I don't think anyone was... I wish I had a, a record player in here who could play it. Now, there was actually... We could do that. We can try to find a way to do that. Maybe if you want to tack it on to the end of this podcast, that'd be yeah. kind of cool. Um, but uh, this was originally planned as a double LP album, like the Star Wars album was. And someone thought it would be better to try to sell disco and John Williams together. Um, but I bring this up because because it's interesting because this is the original release. This is the 40th anniversary release done last year, produced by a good friend of mine, Mike Medicino, who does a lot of these sort of things. Um, and but it does not have a disco track, I'm assuming. It does not have the disco not, track. Is it a hidden track or anything? It doesn't have the disco track. 40 minutes of nothing, and then boom, suddenly it's disco. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the score, it's the score, and it's the soundtrack Perfect. album, and it's the, and what it is is it's alternate versions of, of music from the film. And there are a lot of alternates, because it was very, like the last third of the picture was basically cut to music once the music came in, and then they would go back and make alterations based on the effects and how they were. It was a very different era. But I bring this up. I bring this bring this up specifically, and we're all looking at these. We're passing around because I wanted to talk about the the fantasy element when you're young and you want to get into the entertainment business, or you want to get in maybe not into the business, but you want to make movies. Let's make it make it as simple as that. Or you want to be in movies. The double shot of Star Wars and Close Encounters in the same year was absolutely seismic. For me, it was more Close Encounters than Star Wars. I enjoyed Star Wars. Mm -hmm. I was a big fan of Star Wars. But it was not the film that made me want to be a filmmaker. This, I can say, was. Mm -hmm. Now, did I love every part of it at the time? No. As I'm saying, I, as a child, I felt uh, there were... there were I liked more, more aspects, certain aspects of it more than others. But I bring it up because you cannot deny, and at least I can't deny having seen it, the seismic change those 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 films brought, not just to the positivity that could be you know built into films, or at least the positive stories that could now be told, or or flights of fancy that that populated the eighties, but really, how many people got pushed into the industry as a result of these films? Hmm. And I'm not just making that. It's not just sort of propaganda. Oh, no. It's absolute truth. It's truth because of technology, because it became possible to tell the stories that, that these were. It's truth because the filmmaking of Spielberg and, and, and Lucas at the time, but also specifically as Spielberg would go through and make all, all these films were mass audience pictures. And we all were engaged by them. It's true also because people still listen to John Williams. And, he's, and despite the fact that he does not, uh, in some people's minds, write its most iconic work anymore, like uh, that is create iconic work from scratch, as much as he as he was. He was on fire during this period. Yeah, but he's on. But uh, yeah, and, still, and for the decades that for, that went after that, I mean, you, you look at. You will talk it. You, you will talk people. My point is that people who heard this album and heard Star Wars, grew up wanting to play horn in the London Symphony, hmm. and he yeah. met them when he did the next Star Wars trilogy. And so my point is is that all this the film we just watched on just a few levels, had seismic impact in visual effects, filmmaking in general, uh, appreciation, and re the reignition, this and Star Wars together, the double shot, both by Williams in the same year, oh, so, well, yeah, Williams of this kind of music, which insane. had gone away as of The Graduate and this sort of thing. Now, granted, there's room for 
there's room for any kind of music which makes a movie work. But this type of symphonic score, that kind of religioso that makes up, that allows this film to work, hmm. was nowhere to be found, or and almost it, nowhere to be found. Yeah, and, and I mean, and you could argue, that, and some people have said that, you know, Williams isn't quite doing the kind of music he used to do now. But also, you know, he's not he's a spring. 80, he's 87. Yeah. And <laughs> I would say he's, he's, you know, contributed a lot. Well, it's the same with Robert De Niro. Feelings, right? And the feelings are still there. But go ahead. It's like, well, Robert De Niro's doing all these crap comedies. It's like, you know what? He's earned that right. He can do whatever the hell he wants because he did such incredible stuff. Sure. He can take as long a break as he wants, you know? Yeah. But but to get to be right on the music, I I look at now, it's like, and I'm not the first person to to originate this, this concept, but it's like, you know, hum. A theme from any of the Marvel movies. Oh yeah, I saw. Wh- who? There was a. Video Thank you about for that. bringing that up. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that. But you, up. And I love those movies. Yeah. But the, you don't remember the music. No. I mean, the only music I remember from those movies are like Guardians and the new Spider-Man, and it's well, not the, it's not the score track, but it's, it's just them doing. It's the, it's the it's the soundtrack, yeah. not the score. Right. It's yeah. it's it's music pre-existing music. That has been dropped and married with the, with the picture. Thank you for saying that because this is uh, one of the, one. Of the, I've said this on a previous in a previous moment, but 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 film scores are very much a thing for me. Um, I, I own about two thousand of them. Mm. I've written for Film Score Monthly magazine, which is the leading magazine out of LA, about ten years ago, and mm. was involved with them heavily. I've met Mr. Williams. I don't know him well at all, but but it was one of the greatest moments because I. But yeah. he's one of the only people, the only famous people I've ever wanted to meet. Because he's real, and he does his own stuff. And so my point is, this fellow, Mike Mattesino, who now has gotten to the point, and I met him over 10 years ago when he interviewed me, um, I can't say why, but I can say in relation to the Superman uh, box set of Superman albums, that I had a connection there that might have been fortuitous. But bottom line is is that he uh, uh, wanted to get to this point where, where he could... He could essentially come full circle and work with these people mm-hmm. who are considered the greatest people to to have done this type of work. And this and this I think is very much an, an example of that. I'll give you another example of how this is tied to two thousand one. Douglas Trumbull was in his early twenties when he worked on two thousand one. He was one of many visual effects supervisors on that film. Uh, he was of course the key visual effects supervisor on this and he mm-hmm. essentially set up Blade Runner. Uh, he did uh, Star Trek the motion picture for Paramount when they ran into trouble with their commercial organization doing that hmm. um, yeah anyway, yeah that, that big ship attention. at the end I thought of Blade Runner actually because it's all the colors more, yeah. yeah the, the colors. colors and yeah. also the moiré patterns are very much a thing right. yeah that's Robert Swarthy who does I'm not sure if he pronounced him Swarthy or <laughs> or it's, it's, it's S-W-A T-H-R-E or S-W-A-R I was like Red Favre yeah, <laughs> one of those ones. Maybe, maybe. Foul. Anyway, his Foul. stuff. His stuff basically is like, to me some of the most charming elements of this film because it's all. The, anytime you see stars, mm-hmm. anytime you see moiré patterns, anytime you see the light effects, a lot of that is him. But it's also the same guys who did Star Wars, shooting the ships in this. It's Dennis Murin doing it in smoke, and and I saw the model for this. It was still on display at one of the two Smithsonian's back in two thousand. 12. Oh, amazing. It's only this big. It's only about the size of a couple wow. of large mixing bowls. Wow. But that's all you need. But it's, 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 like, the effects in this are amazing. And even my son, who is, who's very anal and nerdy about visual effects, he was impressed when he watched this. Because 
he understands the context of the time and what was possible yeah. and what wasn't. This also is the first motion control shot. In, in uh, the first live action motion control shot, where, where they're holding those what looked like microphones up to the ship, and it's sort of floating by, and it does it in one thing, and then it just sort of flies off. What that was is it was live action tracking of, of, of a gearhead that was photographing, uh-huh. and then translating that in you know months later to be able to shoot the model to get the same moves. That's actually the very first time that was ever done. Hmm. There were so many. F- I, 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 I'm 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 holding back on all the firsts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's just gorgeous. And there's also there's stuff in here that's done like like the like the nerdy stuff I look at is like the, the, the diopter shots in this movie are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So um, like the table. Yeah, do you know what I mean? No. So uh, it's when you've got a really an object far away and close up that are both in focus. You normally it's impossible to do because it's your depth of field. Yeah. But when you you can put a thing on called a diopter that allows you to focus both at the same split time. Split diopter actually. It's, it's, a half, after, yeah. it's half a piece of glass. But uh, like a bifocal, right? right, right. Yeah, essentially, right, yes. Right, right, right. Yeah. But what? But what, what usually happens is they put like a gauze on it. They put like some kind of, to try to blend blur the two, right? And it, usually you can tell, you can see where that line is. And there, like some of the ones in here, especially the one in at the the mashed potato scene, because you've it's, got it's the dark, and you've got him. Yeah, the darkness helps. The darkness helps. If you look at, at you the, can't I, even see where that line is. I, I was looking hmm. at it, especially because watching it on the on the projector in HD, I was like, I'm trying to look for that line. And I was like, fuck, it's so good. Wow, it's such a nerdy, weird little thing. It, yeah, it, in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, it's either the most annoying thing or the most amazing thing. But that is a film of split diopter shots. They were forced to shoot on the bridge. They, when they had all the displays on the monitors in that film, they were using 16 millimeter and 8 millimeter projectors. So they were, it was really loud. They had the ADR. They had the not oh. ADR, but they had to re-record all the dialogue afterwards. But the point is, is that the is that in order to see the projector bulbs, they had to open up the aperture and the lens really wide. So in order to get any depth of field, they had to use split diopters. But they almost you could argue that it's so annoying to watch that they use it all the time. Yeah. That it, it's it's almost too much of a use of that because you can No, see it's again it's like lines. you know you only use that for specific moments. It's an, the untouchables. It's a great example in the church, right? Yeah. Of a split. A wonderful example of a good moment. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's a, it's the kind of thing you can't just pull out and use nonstop. Yeah. It's it's, and it's that's what that felt Yeah, it's used for an emotional reason. It's to connect something. Was that <laughs> to really swing to a different subject? Was that the mother from Alf? Terry Gar? No, not Terry Gar. Terry no, Gar was Melinda the wife. Dillon? Melinda Dillon. Melinda Dillon. Yeah. I don't think she ever did. She had, no. It was the mother for. It was the mother from Harry and the Hendersons. The, oh, the, the, Harry the, and the, the movie. Yeah. She was in Harry and the Hendersons. I, I was sitting there watching her, going like, I know who this is. Who is she? She was yeah. really. She's really good, and she very much she's is great. sort of. She's very much in the mold of what of what. Uh, You'll see if you see Sugarline Express, uh, Goldie Hawn, the way mm. she dresses, oh, and, right. and yeah. his, his idea of a, an ideal female mother. counterpart, mother like mother figure. Um, yeah, I mean, but you know, you talked about actors who are committed, and to some degree, they were quite committed due to substances on this film. Uh, <laughs> certainly, Richard Dreyfuss was, and Melinda Dillon, I think, had her own issues. And mm. I can't say shot by shot what what went on, but that was certainly an aspect. Now, did you guys know you, of course. Jeremy, you know Francois Truffaut, but do yeah. you know that Truffaut? You know who Truffaut is in this, watching this film? Uh, he, he, I recognize his name, but I don't know. Oh, he's, a, he's a very famous French filmmaker. Like he did like New Wave, like like the Four Hundred Blows, Jules and Jim. 
okay. he's like one of the, when you hear French New Wave. There was yeah. Godard. There was him. There was like a handful. Right. He did the Antoine Dunel series, which was four hundred blows exactly. through to. Still in Kisses is that the last one? Bed and Board? Uh, I just know yeah, his name. I, so. I, don't, I don't think I really know You him. may know his repertoire more, more, more than I do. What, what, I, what I will say about this is that Spielberg has said, because he had this great French director at that time doing this, he said it was like, watch, it was like I think it's, I might have the painter wrong, but he said it was like having Monet in your midst while you're still learning to paint by numbers. and and, and it was like he's he's so and and Truffaut is known for having taken this film he said that because he wanted to learn English and he wanted to see how American directors worked (laughs) I've got to say you know in the history of 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 talent of directorial talent you know whether you like his films or not he continues to be the real thing and how could you have picked a better, you know, Truffaut's brilliant. I mean, to He's, pick a better, I mean, it's a It's total such group. a bizarre casting. Yeah. But it works in, in such a weird way. Well, he's good in it. Hey, he's great in it. He, 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 I buy that he's like, yeah, he's, he's just so into it. He just believes in what he's doing and it's important to him. And, and again, it's very positive. He's very positive. Yeah. But it is true to like put that context that you were putting in earlier about when this film comes out in the history of cinema, because it's coming at the end of that. Because you know we went went through the you know the fifties and the sixties where you've got the you know the the Hayes Code production code and all those things and mm-hmm. an overly positive rah rah rah, and then you go into this era of you know like your Easy Riders and sixties overlit into suddenly it's biker films. Suddenly it's suddenly it's debauchery. Suddenly, hey, we can show this. Let's do this. Let's take our clothes off. Let's drug drug use. Let's let's go yeah. crazy. Yeah. And then now you got these kids coming in, going, we're still like independent kooks, but we want to bring in the not a broad's not the right word, but we want to make film for the masses again. But just find almost like taking the blend of those two different things right. and being able to go because th- this film doesn't exist without those other films of the 70s. Right. And those yeah. films that took their time and had more artistic license, you know? So it's interesting, you know, watching these guys come out of those influences and into their own way. Hmm. It's, also, it's also interesting, too, Spielberg in general is just, you know, charmed, for sure, talented, for sure. But, you know, his first directing, his first directing job was for Rod Serling, Directing Joan Crawford for an episode of, of Night Gallery. Yeah. Yes, it was just television, but sorry, Rod Serling, Joan Crawford. Yeah, it's huge. You know, in the, I mean, obviously he's he's been able to he's been able to show that he's still a fairly positive thinker. I don't think that too many filmmakers of that period were were positive thinkers. There's a, a editor named Paul Hirsch. I, I think it was Paul Hirsch. He said, and he who edited Carrie and Star Wars. And the Empire Strikes Back, and uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I mean, his the list of great films he's done uh, show his he's a true contributor to those. I think he basically was saying that uh, the difference between Brian De Palma, who's considered much bigger, not only bigger than Spielberg, but certainly very very big at that point in this in that in, in the seventies, is that. Uh, the, the 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 difference between sorry between uh, Lucas and De Palma was that they'll both build you up incredibly well and in, in a well structured way, 
to that just in that moment. Except the difference is, the Palma will let it all go. We'll, 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 we'll basically spoil it all with death and destruction, and Lucas will save the day. Right. And that's a, and that point of view, whether it's true in their lives or not, is certainly only true. I think with Lucas and Spielberg in terms of having the guts to bear that emotion uh, on screen. I don't. There aren't that many. Uh, films of that period. I think people did it later for, you know, wanting to get more on the train of it being a profitable venture. Um, there yeah. are others too. There, Richard Donner, who I think is very underrated as far as being as far as being a, a positive thinker in terms of how he even how he might even approach uh, even a film like *Lethal Weapon*, just in terms of the of the spirit of the film or *Goonies* or *Super Scrooged*. Yeah. Or Scrooge, which is like a great movie. Scrooge is one of my so, favorite Hollywood movies. Of it's time. a sweet movie. Not afraid to be sweet. Not afraid to be, but not like saccharine necessarily. Just not afraid to be positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, 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 it goes a bit off the rails at the end. But I still love it. I, I, it's I get, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's part of the fun. Yeah. No. Exactly. Any any final thoughts, Dave? Um, you had the, one of my favorite moments of watching with you was uh, the first time they're coming around, and you're like, why does it have to be a little boy? <laughs> oh, I, yeah. Sorry, what was Well, that? it's just, I've got a two-year-old boy, and, and like... It's since, when he runs off into the woods the first since time. I've had, since I've had chill, a child, it's really hard to watch... Uh, Children in danger? Kid, kids in danger, and yeah. even animals in danger. Anything that's innocent in danger... And so as we're, I don't know, you know, I didn't know what we were getting into with this film and how, which way, how Because it could scary, it's potentially quite scary, right? It could have been way scarier than what it was. But that, in those moments where like something's going to happen to that boy, I'm like, oh, fuck, why did it have to be a young boy? (laughs) He looks not a lot like Killian, but like he's got the same coloring and it's just like. But it's great. It drew you in. Oh, yeah, completely. My favorite scene in terms of how it looked was when uh, the boy and the mother are in the house and the lights are on the outside. Uh, mm-hmm. That was amazing. I thought that was amazing. Um, it, I like that much more than watching the actual UFO go by, you know, or something yeah, like it's, that. Yeah, it's, at, this, at this point and also with E.T., very much basing his films on the notion of, no, no, no. Suggestion. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. and Jaws and as that, well. He gets right? so like, much mileage out of that beyond the stuff of the filmmakers. And the stuff that impresses me is is all those the practical stuff of like the screws being unscrewed yeah. in the in the, in the right. vent. Yeah. The the mailboxes opening and closing, like all that stuff that you know they had to do practically at that point. Oh yeah. Like none, shot, of, none of that CGI. And shot by like the six credited cinematographers, all of them, each of them Oscar worthy cinematographers on those films. They had so many inserts and so many little reshoots and things. <laughs> <laughs> really, Jesus, yeah. six. That's crazy. But yeah, uh, uh, that's you mentioned before about leaving about kids in danger, and I think it was done for the 2007, probably done for the 2007 video release of Close Encounters. But I recall seeing him on, on uh, being interviewed on set for Saving Private Ryan, saying that if he was making the film now, Roy would never have gotten on that mothership and left his children. Well, that's uh, yeah. That's a question I had for sure. Did you have that? Well, not yeah. Not so much. Well, a little bit. Like, well, what happened with his wife? But then, especially like, he, he, he's really going. Okay, those those kids. What about his kids? Did you think? Did you did did you actually separate yourself from the film long enough to think the thing? I only thought about it again when the kid when Barry comes out of. I only you know this time through 
reminded myself again, that, oh, right, well, Roy, you're just going to happily trot off in your red, in your red jumpsuit. And, Those jumpsuits well, as soon me. as, as soon as yeah. the guy started asking him, him questions, I was like, Whoa. yeah. And then when I saw him in the red jumpsuit, then it was like, uh, it was a very quick battle in my mind of like, is he going to go? Oh, I guess that, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But there, but like, yeah, you're really that separated from your family at this point. Like this is so profound. I mean, of course it is, you know, on some level, it's yeah, so profound. Make that point. But then, and then when the, the alien, after he went on the ship, when the alien was approaching Truffaut, I was like, Oh, it's, are they going to, it feels like they're going to ask him to come and he's going to say no. That's what it felt like, but that's not what happened. But yeah. As a and kid, as a kid, you don't. Th- I'm just gonna say, as a kid, you don't even like your mind doesn't even go there. No, well, not, I don't. But I think when I first watched it as a teenager, I it 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 didn't pull me out of the movie, but it made me go, oh, like, I was thinking. It made me think of my dad. I'm like, my, I, my my dad would never leave us. Like he would never. But it's also this is very much a comment on Spielberg's own childhood too, you know, mm-hmm. and the unhappiness of it. You know, he's a product of divorce, <laughs> and and you see that in ET. You see that in you know, a lot of the films of this period that he's making. And so I think that's, you know, once he became a father, years later, he changed his view on how he would end the movie. And mm-hmm. he also, he also, he also makes this point that the scene where he drags, just drags the family out into the night, into the, you know, to see something really cool is basically exactly what his dad did with his, with his mom. I don't think it was to see a UFO. I think it was to see a, a, an astronomical event. I could have that wrong. My dad did that to me. Yeah. When I was a kid, woke me up in the middle of the night. I love when they cut the, the doors open, like the one kid's got his ass in the air. I'm like, that's exactly yeah, yeah. how kids sleep. Yeah, the kids, okay. I know, I know. It's great. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I know. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, so what did your dad drag you out to see? Oh, he just dragged, he dragged me down to uh, our, our living room, had like big windows, and there was a, a lightning storm going on, like fork lightning, and like perfect fork lightning across the sky. And I, I remember at the time being like, what? And then looking and being like, yeah, cool. And, you know, I, I don't even, you know, we watched it for a bit and then I went back to bed. And I just remember at the time being fairly unimpressed and now being so touched that he did that, that he woke me up to, to share that with me. And it was such a cool, such a cool thing. But at the time, very like, well, okay. I, never, I, I can't recall. I don't think I've ever woke my kids up to show them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my son stopped building his Lego today so I could show him the new Avengers trailer. That's, <laughs> there you go. You gotta come here right now. That's the modern day equivalent. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? But I can't remember a note. <laughs> yeah. No, don't, don't listen to the music. The music's fine. It services it, but you're not gonna remember. Yeah. There is something weird, though, about, like, I could easily show my son Fork Lightning on YouTube. Like, and it would, it would be interesting and cool and, like, whoa... And he's two, so he'd be into it to some degree, at least for a couple seconds. And it's it, but it's not the same thing. But like, there, it real. There, there's something, there's something about that we're ta- we were talking about, like the work you need to do to get to the amazing thing in the film, and that that's disappeared in film now. But like, there's, I think that's disappeared in life a lot, in all yeah. aspects of life. I don't know what it's going to be like for my daughter. Like, we obviously we all do some some degree limit try to limit screen time and we try to, you know, right. sort of do a lot of real things to counterbalance the, yeah. with our kids. I, I have to say, I, you know, if I, if I knew growing up that I could look at 
essentially the resolution of this image right now is the re on this on this LP, the cover of this LP of the soundtrack of this album is the resolution of your screen. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's mm -hmm. about the same resolution. And if I knew that I would grow up, and as a child, if I were growing up now, actually have access to technology like an iPad where I could watch something at that resolution, I don't know where my I don't know where Dreamland why dreaming would be better or where it could take me that was different or what reaction I'll have intellectually that will make me create or want to, you know, create different things as a result of that level. Because back then we couldn't, we couldn't do that as far mm. as even just sort of being yeah. amateurs and playing. You know, that's, that's, that's a fear I have with, this, with the next generation. And this is where we sound like old men, but it's, <laughs> but it's that, you know, we grew up at a time where you were bored and you had to do something without boredom. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you, in your creativity took over where kids nowadays don't know how to be bored. You know, or but there's just, no time. There's no time to be bored. They, they no. can, they can, as soon as that moment hits, I mean, th this has been talked about. I've heard this talked about in, it's from so many f different facets, uh, about like that. You just com completely, there's always something to look at always something to look at and that you're just consuming all the time. And if you're consuming, it means you're not creating, so you're not reflecting, you're not reflecting and or creating or, and so it brings us back to this movie, which is essentially, you know, a film that takes us time to build and to present these little thesis statements along the way, which was like, well, this is, you know, take its time to really work on you psychologically because it's a horror film for the first two thirds of the first third of the film, horror domestic films, very poltergeist actually. For the, before you know, but it doesn't get as nasty. Mm -hmm. So, it, but it, it works on you, and, uh, and yeah, do people have the patience for things that work? I think eventually everyone does because they want to have. I mean, if unless you're sociopathic, you want to submit this to a situation emotionally. You want to feel. It's just a question of how, you know. It's a question of whether you could build this film, which I hope no one remakes. But whether how no. you would build a film like this for today, you, you have to change it so much. I sure, mean, in terms of the plot, how could you change it? And how could you change it so? Could you deliver the values right. this film delivers as far as entertainment values, as far as depth? And some would argue it doesn't have that much depth, but I would argue it has a certain amount of depth. I, I, I think that you know it. It would be a big challenge. No, you, they, they wouldn't make it like now. This movie is Independence Day, or it's like that's the version of this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, which is not not positive at all, except flag waving. No, really but that's cool. what yeah. I mean. Like it's just yeah. people they don't have the patience for it. You need well, the what about like that third act? Where basically for half an hour they're just standing around w waiting to see what a ship's going to do. Yeah, like you'd never get away with that third that's act. What I wanna, that's what I want to just if we could just for a second talk about that because I know we don't have a lot of a lot of issues with runtime, but I, I know we. Probably should wrap up in a moment or two. That, the idea of, this is something, another concept of 70s filmmaking, which was very much a kind of event filmmaking. An event movie meant there was one really awesome epic scene, hmm. one really big stunt somewhere in the movie. Hmm. I'm talking about movies like Black Sunday. I'm not so much talking about like Towering Inferno because that was its own kind of disaster genre where it was a sort of its own genre. Although I do look at Jaws being the last disaster movie that's not really a disaster movie, but um, uh, but I think that that I think that aspect of thing, the notion of being an event film, 
this film was promoted, people were not, when it was promoted, they weren't really sure, uh, Columbia wasn't really sure how to promote this film because of people trying, you know, they essentially they worked <coughs> on the notion of mystery, which is this road scape leading into this sort of, this sort of hell and this sort of glowing, glowing object behind it. Because they didn't want, they wanted people to take the concept seriously, but I think they felt that over-explaining would be difficult. So they talked about this big event ending, and that this is what I remember reading about in fan magazines or or hearing about and seeing after the fact as well. Um, that ending was very much what people knew. They were yeah. going into the film to wait for. Right. They didn't know what it would be. They knew much less than any studio would normally publicize their event pictures. About yeah, they 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 weren't given all that information, but they were waiting for that. Today, you don't, you can't find a counterpart to that. Mm-hmm. Um, p- people basically from frame one, it's it's full on, you know, CG, um, orgasm, nirvana of some kind, and there's no nothing. There's very very few moments in a film. Even I'm trying to think of Wonder Woman, maybe, which would be the No Man's Land sequence, being the last sequence in a film that I can think of even like in a superhero film where someone says, okay, well, there's, there's a sequence in this film that's really amazing. Or, and, and I'm, I'm kind of overplaying that hand too. When I'm yeah, that. I think, like the, the, and this is not by any means a recent example, but I think you like think of a film like Titanic. You know how that film is going to end. Right, so you're, you're waiting for the second half of the film. You're piece. waiting for that whole thing to come because it's going to come down. Yeah, or yelling at the screen because you're bored and you want it to come. But that's 21 years ago. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Yeah. But I, I think the equivalent is most. I mean, you know, most any any superhero movie, you know, there's going to be a showdown at the end, and you're waiting for that. Yeah. Uh, but to know you're waiting for something specific, I think, is a much. Different what about way. like a boxing or sports or something like that? Yeah, you're waiting for the big the, the big fight at the end. But are or you the, waiting for something you've never seen before because you don't know where the narrative? Like that's right. the one thing about this yeah. film yeah. that is very. Uh, anyway, that's. I think the closest thing that we have is something that's actually coming up right now for us. Is this like this uh, third Avengers movie where it's it's this ten years in the making. 72 characters in one movie mm-hmm. where you know this is going to be this giant epic thing. What about what about like an M, M. Night movie where it's like you know there's going to be some crazy twist? I think for a while there was it, that. Like, that it, yeah. I, I certainly had that feeling going into every one of his movies. You're, I think you're right. You know there's going to be You a know movie. there's going to be something. You I, don't know what it is. But you start it, trying to figure twist, it out. As opposed to an event. But you, yeah, you're looking for it then. Well, you know, but that's was, more of a formula thing. And maybe, yeah. maybe I should maybe I should be even more specific and say it goes back to your point earlier about there are mundane parts to this movie. Mm. Yeah, but the mundane doesn't matter because you know it's not based about, on the marketing that if there's going to be this big right. event, and today it would kill you to have a mundane like um, you know studio people would not like mundane. Well, anywhere. you don't do, they don't do things. There's a like one big giant moment is you can't sell That's a film right. on that. Cause no, now no. it's like you need seven right. and it's about the moments that get you from one to the next. What about something like it, it follows in a di- very different way where it's like, that was a real throwback horror film. I haven't seen it. It all, oh, it follows is great. That's fantastic. It's mm-hmm. really fantastic. I'm usually not drawn to horror pictures. But it's like it's, the whole, it's, it's a, barely. I mean, it is horror. It's a horror film with the the villains an STD. <laughs> right. It's um. It's wonderful. <laughs> that's it, what follows. The, yeah. Okay. That's how it, that's how you pass it along. It's basically how, it's a great concept. Yeah. Without so. ruining it too much, basically the concept is that you learn it fast. There's something that follows you that it will never stop trying to kill you, 
and but you can get rid of it by by having sex with somebody else, and now it'll follow them. But now, oh, but okay. it goes after them. But if if that person dies, then it goes to the one before. If that one person dies, it goes to the one before. So right? you want okay. you, so want, you want, want to pass it you, on. You want it far away. From so okay. people are like having sex. So I'd have sex with Dave. And then encourage him, go have sex with somebody else as quickly as possible. Yeah. Otherwise, this th- if this thing catches up to you, it'll kill you. So it's, 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 but so it's like, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's like the, the, the lower, lower metaphor is basically. It's not sadistic. It's, it's, it's a, a good horror from my point of view where it's much more psychological. Um, and, and it's not about some sadistic torture crap or whatever. That actually does I sound, hate. that actually does sound very interesting. And to bring it back to this for a sec. Uh, there was supposed to be a sequel to this film. Hmm. Yeah. And it was, and they, they hired, the they hired John Sayles to write it. Okay. Right? Because John Sayles was into genre quite a bit. And, uh, and, and that became plinted off. The horrific elements became part of Poltergeist and also a little bit. And the alien element to part of E.T. Was Dreyfus's character supposed to come back? Or? I don't know enough about it at okay. all. Be curious. He'd have to come back for his kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was like that. I think it was more of a, I think it was much more of a like scare the shit, scare the shit out of people kind of movie. But I think didn't Spielberg make the point? I think he did make the point. Is that like I would not like this is why Close Encounters is what it is. You would not have like all the films that prior to this where aliens had come and kind of like I guess War of the Worlds or things like that. What she right. later ends up doing, which in a complete about totally face kind of movie. And, I hate the film. Um, it it's basically you Did know. You do the new one, new yeah, world? the new yeah. one. Ah, and yeah. uh, I mean, there's a film that other than one sequence, I can't point to it for any other real work. But um, uh, you know, where he said, that I can't imagine a world. I can't imagine a universe where aliens would travel all that distance, could spend all that energy and all that technology, all that intelligence to come and scare some farmers, right? Just to do that, yeah. Yeah, I you know what if they were to make like a follow up now if you were to decide I want to make a sequel to Close Encounters now mm-hmm. where it's like Dreyfus has come back as an old man I'd watch the movie, but then that would go against Einstein's theory he shouldn't come back as an old man at all time hasn't passed. I, I, I but no. Well, uh, the, I mean, in theory, the, those soldiers came back. The soldiers yeah, came they came back. They came back usefully. But I, I, I don't. I don't but that means they were traveling the whole time. Or they weren't gone that long. Is that I think it's just not you, for them. No, not for them. them it's like, it's the light idea. But like, what if he's actually gone for light a long speed time? And so, so should we do it? Should we do it by de aging Dreyfus with like with like visual effects? Should it be a CGI fest like the Irishman is supposed to be? No, no, no. Let's just, just not do just it. Just use real <laughs> Dreyfus or don't do it. Yeah, yeah. You real Dreyfus is an old man, and we'll explain it in some way. Yeah. The travel was fast. I didn't age in the travel, but I spent fifty can, years. Can there. he come back? Can he come back and show up at Terry Carter's house and say, "Honey, he's actually been I really gone. Miss your, no, I no, really he, miss your muffins." He's actually been gone for a thousand years. A thousand years. Right? A thousand years. <laughs> and he doesn't recognize the world he comes back but he, to. But he's only fifty years older. So it's like yeah. the Rip, it's like Ripley, basically in Aliens, but like the director's cut. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And with that, now we're just spiraling out of control. <laughs> yeah. wow. Well, thanks, guys. Oh, thanks for having me, and thanks for thanks for doing this on. It's I can I can check it off my list I, I, and happily do that. I was finally able to really test out my subwoofer with this movie. Oh mm. yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> I was like, I, you might be ruining your speakers right now. That's getting pretty. 
I think I, it was okay. I think you could feel that. That was actually one of the selling points at the year of the. I saw I saw the film in seventy millimeter, and it was actually one of the selling points because by that point there were just a few seventy millimeter prints of Star Wars and a few of of this. But people were like, "You have to see that version." Yeah, and that really changed sound in film. People st- like a uh, theater started installing Bad. more and better systems because of the sequence at the end of this film, yeah. predominantly because of all the low ends. You gotta, you gotta see this one in the Cenosphere because I was there not too long ago. And right, that's that sound was for Blade, the new Blade Runner, and it was yeah, yeah, like you could feel it, feel it, in yeah, a, in a, it was so crazy. Well, thank uh, you, sound. Sound. <laughs> Thanks, guys. See you. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Thanks for joining us for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word about it. You can find me on Twitter at Lilon Jeremy. You go to Facebook for Black Hole Films. Leave a review there on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to this thing. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby.